The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And tonight in our study of the church, we're going to look at another very important aspect of church doctrine, and this concerns the leadership of the church. Now, there, the church has officers that the Lord has given to administer his affairs. Uh, there is no organization that works well without leadership, and of course the Lord's church is no different. We also need leadership in New Testament churches. Now, one thing it's important for us to understand is that the officials of the church, the officers of the church, are not essential for church existence because the church, of course, precedes the officers. But officers are very important. It's good. It, it, we really do need officers. We need pastors. We need those that uh, teach the Word of God and administer the affairs of the church so that the church can work in the most efficient manner possible. Now, in the New Testament, there are uh, two offices that pertain to ministry. These are the offices of the pastor and the deacon, the pastor being the primary office. Uh, that's the only ones that the Bible gives us, although there are some who believe that there are other uh, offices of ministry in the church. For instance, Roman Catholics and some others have counted up to 10 or 12 different officers for the church. But we can't find that in the Scripture. Those are additions to the Scripture. And whenever you add things to Scripture, you can expect that you're going to run into trouble. And one of the terrible problems that you have in the Roman Catholic Church today is this hierarchy that's been established with all the different ministers that have different responsibility. And the only thing that that's done is to add to chaos and confusion. Uh, the resignation of a pope just recently uh, shows the deep sin of the hierarchy uh, of the Vatican. That's just a testimony to it. But those aren't recent problems that the Roman Catholic Church has had. This has been their history. Uh, they've always had problems in that area with the, with the ministry of the church being corrupt. Well, in this text of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul gives us one of the officers of the church. Uh, there are no more than two. These, again, are the pastors and the deacons. And so pastors and deacons are the two offices that we will study. And our text here in verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 speaks specifically about the pastor. And so that's what we're going to deal with for a while. Uh, there is a similar text in the book of Titus that also talks about the pastor and qualifications for him. And those are the two main places that we find in Scripture that describe the duties of the pastor. Now, if you look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, this is a true saying... If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy, into a few short minutes or long minutes, depending upon your patience and your spirituality. So these could be short minutes or long minutes for you. But this is really a huge subject, and to explore all the things that uh, goes into a pastor's ministry would really take a seminary course rather than a 
than a few minutes in a church service. But I've taken all the information and I've tried to shorten it as much as I can. But I still want to give you a good comprehensive view of what the pastor does and why we have a pastor and all the information that's attendant to the office of the pastor. So I've pared down that information for you. Uh, pastors, a good pastor and qualified pastors are a great asset to the church. Uh, they are a focal point in the church. Uh, this is where you receive the instruction of the word. And uh, this is a, a very important place that God has for ministry in the church. And the enabling power to do this is not mine. It's not the person who stands here in the pulpit. But this comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have a pastor that that is preaching without the Holy Spirit, then you're going to have a, a, a terrible time in ministry. We we're, not, we're not going to have the kind of church that we need to have unless the, the Holy Spirit has equipped the person who stands in the pulpit for the ministry. Now, I think that what we need to do first is to look at the terms that the Bible uses for this office, and that will help us to clearly understand how that we arrive at two offices in the, in the church rather than three or four different ones. Because there are different uh, terms that are applied for the pastor of the church, but these terms all are uh, referring to one man who has this responsibility or this office. So let's look at the terms of the office. They, did, they do cause some confusion. And the first one is the one that's most familiar to you because this is the one that we've used for the heading of the study, and that is the word pastor, the pastor. Pastor is the word poimen in the Greek, and it means a shepherd. And although it is the most popular word that we use, and it is the word that's been most popular throughout the history of the church, yet you may not know this, but you can only find the word pastor or pastors one time in the New Testament, ruling elders. And based upon that, there are some churches, even some Baptist churches, that have set up a, a ruling type of government uh, based on ruling elders and, uh, I mean, it's rather than a congregational government, they have elder government where you have ruling elders and teaching elders. I don't think that's, that's right as far as Scripture is concerned. First Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So rather than a division of duties, those two particular verses where it talks about elders that rule also say that they are elders who teach the word of God. So elders that rule and elders that teach are two functions that are incorporated into one office, that is the office of the pastor. Now, Titus was told to ordain elders in every city. In Acts 20, verse 17, Paul called the elders of the church to meet him at Miletus. Well, is elder a separate office of the church? I think it's very clear, especially as we look in Acts chapter 20, that the elders that were called to meet with Paul were pastors. They're the very same ones that he told to shepherd the flock of God. Now, we find the term elder used throughout the Old Testament. And uh, you can imagine what, what an elder is. An elder is an aged person. It also refers to the wisdom of a person. Uh, today, when we use the word elder, we use it as a term of respect. Now, the pastor doesn't necessarily have to be an old man, although unfortunately you have an old man that's pastoring you. He doesn't have to be an old man, but he does have to be somebody 
who has wisdom to effectively execute the office. And so the elder, elder is a term that refers to the respect that's afforded to the pastor because of learning and because of wisdom. Well, we have yet another title in Scripture for the pastor, and that is the term bishop. In this text, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. We find that same term is used in Titus 1, verse 7. Bishop is the word, or translated from the word episcopy, same word from which we get episcopal. And those that have a hierarchical form of church government believe that a bishop is a different office, and that's how you get a... He's different from a pastor, and so you have a bishop that is above a pastor. You have a a bishop that may oversee many different churches, and that's what gave rise to this graded ministry where you have the archbishops and cardinals and popes and all those other offices that they have in between. Well, is bishop a different office from that of the pastor, or does it refer to the same office? Well, we can go back to Acts again. And in uh, the place where Paul met with the Ephesian elders, and this is what he says in the 28th verse of that chapter, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now you see the word overseers in that verse. That is the word episcopy. Same word translated as bishop. In our text, the First Timothy 3, verse number 1. So Paul is using these three terms, the pastor, the elder, and the bishop, to refer to the same office. The presbyter, the bishop, the elder, the shepherd, the pastor, all of those are interchangeable terms for this office. So Paul didn't call for three different groups to come and meet him in Miletus. Rather, he called one group, and that one group answered to all these different aspects of this one office. So those are the terms that we find in Scripture. Pastor is the term that we use for nurturing. Elder is the term for respect. And bishop is the one that's used for the oversight of the church. Well, I want to look in, our, uh, in the last part of our message tonight about another aspect of the office that's very important, and that, that is how that a person becomes. How does a man become a pastor of the church? So secondly, we're going to talk about the call to the office. How does a man become a pastor? Well, there are some that look at the pastor as a career choice. Uh, Just anyone might decide to do this. They might decide that they want to get into the business of religion, and so they decide that they will make ministry their career, and they choose ministry for the wrong reasons. Some of them look at it as a power trip, Uh, Some of them look at it as a way to gain prestige. Uh, I mean, for a person who wants to get his own little territory, his own little kingdom, being the pastor of the church is a way that you can get there. And then in some cases, people become, men become pastors of churches because they're looking for money. And if you, uh, that's not a very good way to start out, I'll tell you that, first of all, but if you're looking for money. But there are some churches where you can make a lot of money being a pastor, especially in some of the charismatic churches. I mean, if you can give, convince people that they will be blessed, if they will send all their money to you, then you're all set. You're ready to go. And that's how they become rich in the ministry. Then others want to become a pastor because they think it's an easy job. 
I mean, all you have to do is preach three, two, maybe three sermons a week. So what's that take? Hour and a half, two hours at the most. And so two hours, that's all you have to work during the week. Well, I can tell you that's not the truth. Uh, an hour and a half is not all that a pastor works. If you do it right and uh, you do it the way that the Lord wants you to and you put the time into the messages that are required and getting the information that the people need and doing the job that you need to do, there isn't a whole lot of rest to being a pastor. Uh, the study alone, getting ready for messages, that often takes most, if not all, of a 40-hour week just to do that part of it without thinking about all the other things that have to do. But as you look at the Old Testament, it has to be clear by reading what happened there, especially in the book of Acts, re reading what, what uh, uh, the history of the church in the book of Acts, it has to be very clear to us that the pastors of those original churches must have had a much different motive for being a pastor rather than money, power, and prestige. There wasn't any money to be made because most Christians at that time were very poor. And so you could make money doing this. Most of the people, most Christians were slaves. So you didn't have churches with big bank accounts. And then if you went into the ministry for prestige, that didn't work because Christianity was not socially acceptable. I mean, the pastor down at the, the Baptist church wasn't looked at as someone who had a lot of prestige, but he was looked at as a rogue, a menace, maybe even a lunatic, that, that someone would do a job like this. And then pastors were often the first ones that were taken for persecution. The idea was that you take the person who's the leader, take the head, cut off the head, and you kill the body. And so the pastors were the first ones that were taken. So the pastor became a target for all the persecution. Get the leaders out of the church. But of course, reading scripture, we know that it didn't work that way. They did kill pastors, but more kept coming. There wasn't any notoriety for this. Instead of being famous, pastors become infamous. They were people that needed to be eradicated. I mean, you take a look and see what the Roman government did with the leaders of the church. It wasn't long after Jesus was crucified that James the apostle was taken and he was beheaded by Herod. And then Herod also seized Peter and would have killed him, except to remember there was an angel that delivered him from prison. And then you go down the list of the apostles, the leaders of the church, and you find that all of them were martyred except the apostle John. And so to become a pastor of a church, was, was, it wasn't an easy job. You didn't do it for fame. You didn't do it for money. You did it because of some other kind of motivation. So what is that motivation? If it's not all of those things, then what is it? Well, it starts with God. It doesn't start with the man. A man does not decide that he wants to be a pastor. That's a decision that God makes. God decides that a man will be a pastor, and then the person, the man, assents to that call of God. Now, let's talk about the call for just a minute. First of all, there has to be an inward call. God issues an inward call. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul was put into the ministry by God. Now, I don't think there's anybody that could deny, deny that. You look at Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, it's very clear that Paul wasn't out to become the leader, uh, one of the leaders of Christianity or to pastor any churches. Paul was out to kill Christians, but God decided, this is the man that I want. 
And God called him and God made him a minister. He put him into the ministry. Now, the call to the pastorate begins with, uh, it is an inward call, but it begins with a call to salvation. Now, we would think, well, that's, that, that's an obvious thing, almost too obvious for us to mention. But there are many people that say that they're called into the ministry. There are many men that are in seminaries right now that claim, or don't claim rather, that they have a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in their heart. They don't even really know or have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I, I know that this is true because I've, uh, I've read these things, I've encountered these things before uh, as well, but I can, I can tell you that it's true just by going around Roner Park. And I can tell you that pastors of churches where the truth is not taught, people that are preaching lies, they don't have a call from God. That's an impossibility. So I know that, first of all, a person has to have a call to salvation before he could ever preach the gospel to other people. So an internal call to salvation, that is an absolute prerequisite. There has to be this regenerating work of grace in a man's heart before he can preach the gospel of grace to others. And then there's also an inward call to service. And this is above what the average Christian receives. Now, I do believe that all of us, as the people of God, we have a call to service. But the pastor has a particular call. He has a special job that God wants him to do. And so he receives this very special calling from God that only full-time service to the Lord can satisfy. Now, there are bivocational pastors. Uh, Many times you have small churches that can't afford a full-time pastor. But I don't know of any pastor that's worth his call that doesn't want to be full-time. This is what a pastor wants to do. He wants to be able to devote all of his time to the Lord's work. And what a church ought to do is to do its very best to make that possible for the pastor so that He doesn't have to be concerned about how he's going to feed his family, how he's going to pay his bills. The church should take care of a pastor well, and that's another part that we're going to talk about a little bit later on as well. But I've met some bivocational pastors that want it that way. And the reason they want it to stay that way is because they've taken on other enterprises. They've taken on other types of things that they do in order to earn more money, and they're interested in that money. And when they do that the duties of the pastor will suffer. The church will suffer under a bivocational pastor. And that's not to say that there aren't very, very good bivocational pastors. My dad was one for many years, and uh, he was a good pastor, but that is not the optimal setup. That's not the ideal thing for a pastor. Now, we look at the apostles in Acts chapter 6, and most of you should be familiar with that and the selection of the deacons in Acts 6. What do the apostles say? He said, you need to look out some men among you that you can choose to oversee these other things that the church needs to have done, the ministration of the uh, giving out the food and those kinds of things, because the apostles needed to devote themselves to the word of God and to prayer. And they were teaching the people that if we take our attention away from those things, the word of God, preaching the word of God and prayer, then the church is not going to do as well. And so they said, choose some deacons over that work. Well, the same principle is true here with the bivocational pastor. It's best not to have that. The church ought to do everything that it can to make sure that the pastor can uh, go ahead and and be a full-time pastor. 
And the nature of the, of the pastor's work is so demanding that this is not something that you try without a divine call. The pastor deals with eternal questions. He deals with uh, the souls of people. There is a tremendous weight that is put on the shoulders of a pastor because the Word of God says very clearly that he must give an account to God. And God is watching what we do. We come under very close scrutiny by God, and we're going to be held accountable for the execution of the office. So there has to be that inward call that a man received. The salvation, the call to service, these are inward calls that he receives. But that inward call has to be also accompanied with another call. The inward call is the leadership. God sets the man up as the head of the church. He's just under the headship of Christ. But if he is to be a leader, he must be recognized as a leader. And so there also has to be another call, and this is what we call the outward call. The outward call is the recognition of the man's spiritual abilities and the agreement of the church that he is qualified to lead and is to be obeyed. Thomas Oden, in his book, The Call to Ministry, wrote, The inward call is a result of the continued drawing or eliciting power of the Holy Spirit, which in time brings the individual closer to the church's outward call to ministry. The external call is an act of the Christian community that by due process confirms the inward call. No one can fulfill the difficult role of pastor adequately who has not been called and commissioned by Christ and the church. This is why the correspondence between inner and outer call is so crucial for both the candidate and the church to establish from the outset with reasonable clarity. So the man who is to be a pastor, recognizes that he has an inward call, but he's not the only one that recognizes that. I mean, there also has to be recognition from the church. And if the man is the only one that feels the calling, he may have missed that call because we very definitely do believe that the call to the ministry, the call to a pastor, to be a pastor, is one that will be recognized by the church. The church will recognize that gift. But here's the issue, or one of the issues, Churches are not infallible. Charles Spurgeon said that churches may judge after the flesh. They can be wrong. But he also said that he would rather accept the opinion of the company of the Lord's people than to rely solely upon his own. And he said, whether or not you value the opinion of the church, no one can pastor the flock without the consent of the people. That's a necessity. Now, let me throw in a point here for your edification. Uh, This puts a great responsibility upon you as members of the church to be in a place spiritually yourselves where you can recognize and properly evaluate a man's gift. Now, as Spurgeon said, uh, churches sometimes judge after the flesh. They may choose a man after the flesh. One of these days I'll be gone, and then it's going to be time to choose a new pastor. And I know for some of you the day can't come too soon, but it will be time to choose a new pastor. And when you choose another man, he might come in to preach, and he may be all flashy, and he may be dynamic, and he may be exciting. And you listen to him, and you say, wow, we never knew that preaching could be like this before. Look what we've been missing. And he may just pump you up and get you going, and you say, well, you've never heard such preaching like that before. And so the flesh goes after it, 
But that's not the most important thing. You have to evaluate what is being said. What is the truth of the message that's being preached? That's more important all the time than the manner in which a man delivers a message. It has to be the truth that's being preached. So you evaluate the content. You scrutinize that. And so that means that you have to be prayed up. And it means you have to be close to the Lord yourself. You have to be able to recognize a true gift. Now, I have heard plenty of exciting preaching that really didn't amount to very much. And this is one of the problems why that I stopped going to some of the preaching conferences that I used to go to because they were rah-rah, pump-you-up type of messages and they didn't really do anything for you. They didn't really give you anything that would stick with you. What you need is something that helps you to maintain real spiritual growth. And I think that's a real problem with fundamental preaching today. It can be exciting. There are stories and there are jokes and there are tales of this and that without anything that's really substantial. And churches and Bible colleges keep turning out clones that do exactly the same thing over and over and over, and the result is that churches keep getting weaker and weaker. And this is why it's so difficult to find a pastor in a church that can preach the doctrines of God's Word and can't build a sermon out of anything other than jokes and stories and tales that they tell. So the church also has to evaluate the call. The pastor is going to be your spiritual confidant. He'll be the one that will ground you in the truth. But a pastor also has to listen to the counsel of people. Again, Spurgeon said to his ministerial students, the will of the Lord concerning pastors is made known through the prayerful judgment of his church. It is needful as proof of your vocation that your preaching should be acceptable to the people of God. And the Bible tells us that there is wisdom in the multitude of counselors. Proverbs 11:14 says, Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Proverbs 12:15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. Proverbs 15:22, Without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors they are established. So it's good for the man to listen to the wisdom of people that are in the church, but that wisdom has to be the right kind of wisdom, of course. That's why you have to be studied yourself. Now, when a man is ordained to the ministry, that's the agreement of the church to his calling. There are various methods that are used for ordination, but the simplest form is the one that we find in Scripture. In fact, it's the only one that we find in Scripture, and that is the vote of the people. The ordination is the vote of the people. The election to the office is the corporate agreement of the people that they agree that the one they're calling to be the pastor of the church has a calling from God. They recognize that, and they've evaluated that calling and said that it's right. Now, a little bit later, we're going to go through the qualifications of the pastor. These are given in the text. And they need to be looked at very closely by the church to see if a man meets those requirements. Now, I think that we could say that although a man may insist that he has the calling of God and he he thinks that this is what God has told him to do to be a pastor of the church, he may insist upon that. But if you go down through those qualifications and you find that those qualifications are not true about his life, then you know he's missed the call. He doesn't really have the calling from God because one thing the Holy Spirit never does, the Holy Spirit is not going to call an unqualified person. 
So you can't put that off on him uh, to have a pastor that doesn't meet those kinds of qualifications. And then another point, that uh, important point that we need to look at, is that the pastor can receive further confirmation of his calling. And one of those further confirmations is how is the church blessed through his ministry? Now, this is a place where we really need caution because you can, uh, you can read on many church websites and you'll uh, see biographies about the pastor. You'll see something that's written there. And they'll talk about what a great pastor the man is because the church has experienced all kinds of tremendous growth. And our thinking usually is bigger is better. So bigger means that God must be blessing. But the truth is, when you look across the country, the vast majority of churches are not big, and many big churches are not true churches. The growth can be spurred in a lot of different ways, and actually there are very few of the large churches that use godly methods. Now, we do praise God for churches that become large, that are able to have influence in different areas of the world. We thank the Lord for churches that are able to impact others in that way. But the growth of a ministry is not an indictment against smaller churches. God uses smaller churches. And that doesn't mean necessarily that the bigger churches are the ones who are qualified in spiritual leadership. Now, sometimes they'll say, now, what you need to do, uh, they have the mentality that, that, that you need to do this. Your church is not like our church, and your church is not as big as our church because you don't do the things that we do, and so you need to come and let us teach you to do the things that we do. Well, a small church is not necessarily doing anything wrong. Methodology is not what builds the Lord's church. The thing that builds the church is God. He decides how big the ministry will be, and so we depend upon him. As I said, many, many small churches across this country, in fact, uh, the religious backbone of this country is made up of small churches, not the mega churches. So the size of a ministry, that doesn't necessarily tell us whether the pastor's doing a good job or a bad job. You can have a huge ministry and have a horrible pastor as far as the Word of God is concerned, and then you can have a very small church and you can have one that's really doing well spiritually. It's the way that God wants it to be. So you don't evaluate the ministry of the church or the pastor because they're not exactly like someone else. I mean, I can tell you for sure that churches that have grown large by using a purpose-driven model are not using the Word of God to build their church. That is not a biblical model. So how does a church evaluate its own ministry? Well, I think that we would have to say, uh, we would have to ask, what are the people learning about the Lord? Are they being grounded in the truth of God's word? Are people growing spiritually? Now, whether a person grows spiritually is not on the pastor either. It can be. I mean, if I never gave you the truth of the word, then I couldn't expect you to grow spiritually. But I can come in here and I can dump buckets of truth on you and buckets of doctrines on top of you, and it runs off you like water off of concrete. You don't soak it up. That if the pastor's giving truth, it's not his responsibility to make people spiritual. There are people in the church that have to apply what's being told. Now, the pastor does have to ask, do the people recognize leadership ability? Is the truth communicated well through teaching and preaching? Are you receiving what you need to receive? 
Now, there are a lot of things that people can learn that are not necessarily anchoring them to the doctrines of the Word. Now, you have many pastors that are one-trick ponies. They may be very good at moving people towards evangelism, but they don't give the people very much else. Now, evangelism is good, but you have to give people more than evangelism. Sometimes the focus is on standards that are to be kept. And, and the church uh, doesn't really ever cultivate a heart that's motivated by Christ to keep those standards. They only do it because it's required, because the pastor says they must do these things. Now, we have to be motivated by the glory of God to those things. So we look at those different areas. What, what is the church learning? What, what is the pastor teaching? Is truth being communicated properly? Is it being learned by the people? Then there's another way that a pastor might confirm his calling, and that's to seek the counsel of other pastors. Now, do they recognize the gift that he has? And this is one of the reasons that um, I, I said that ordination is the simplest form that we find in the New Testament. In fact, the only form that we find in the New Testament is uh, the election to the office. But that's grown into some other things. Uh, there are ordination councils that are set up, and this is where men will get together and they will question a person for the ministry to find out uh, what does he know about the faith. And the church asks for that to be done so they can help to evaluate the man for ministry. And so that council, ordination council, may come back with a recommendation. And they may say, well, we think this person is qualified to be a pastor. Or they may come back and say he's not qualified to be a pastor. The ordination council is not binding upon a church. The church is the one that chooses but an ordination council can be good, and that's why sometimes those things are set up. Well, before I close this part of the message, and I'll try to do this quickly, I do want to include one more part of the call. The call to the ministry is also a restricted call. I mean that there are only certain persons that can be called to ministry. Now, there are qualifications for it, and those will come later, but I thought that I would include just this one, just this particular one in this part of the message, that a man or person who is called to be a minister, a pastor of a church, must be a male. He is a man. You can't have women to be pastors of churches. And there's one thing that I think that we can say with all certainty, that a church, a supposed church, that would choose a woman as the pastor is already in a very steep spiritual decline that will eliminate it as being one of the true one of the true churches of the Lord. Now, the, the choice of a woman is theological liberalism that the Lord simply will not tolerate. And what happens is you can kiss the truth goodbye and you can expect to be dropped into some of the worst theological messes possible more than you can imagine by having a woman in the leadership. Now, you look in the charismatic churches and you see the wholesale abandonment of anything that's remotely spiritual, you see perversions of the gospel, you see perversions of doctrine, you see demonic forces that are at work almost in every service. And then you take a look at not just charismatic churches, but at Lutheran churches, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches that have ordained women to ministry. You know the thing that comes almost immediately upon its heels very quickly when women are ordained to the ministry? Do you know what the next step is? The ordination of homosexuals. You look at it, and you find where women are ordained to the ministry in the, in the mainstream denominations, the next thing that follows is the ordination of homosexuals. And you know why that's true? Because this is what happens when you corrupt the leadership. 
Now, notice what our text verse says in verse 1. If a man desires the office of a bishop. Now, since the qualifications uh, for the pastorate are expressed in only few places of Scripture, in fact, the main places are here and in Titus, then you would expect that what the Apostle Paul would say here, that if women could be ordained to ministry, this would be the perfect place for him to say, if a man or a woman desires the office of a bishop. But the Scriptures don't allow in any place that a woman should be placed into the leadership of the church. The qualifications that we find here are all peculiar to men. He is to be the husband of one wife. He is to rule his own house well. Well, women aren't rulers in the household. Ephesians says that the husband is the head of the wife. But notice here particularly in our text at the end of verse number 2, it says that the man who's going to be a bishop must be apt to teach. Now, from looking at other scriptures, we know that the teaching aspect of a, a man's ministry, that's one of the most important functions that he has. So if you can't teach, then how much good would a pastor be? But it's not just the ability to teach that's in question here. There's also a special qualification for teaching. Now, just look back in the second chapter, just a few verses back to verse number 12, where the Apostle Paul says, and keep in mind, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, these are called pastoral epistles because these give us uh, the, uh, show us how to recognize pastoral functions. So Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, but I suffered not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So a woman can't teach, she can't have authority over a man, and she is supposed to keep silent in the church. Now that would be hard to be a pastor, impossible to be a pastor if you didn't teach, and if you didn't show any kind of authority, and if you had to keep silent, you couldn't speak. Now, you go on in that second chapter, and you'll notice that the next verses talk about the order of creation. Adam was created first, and then Eve. And then the apostle sets up the chain of command for the church. So the man is the one in authority. Now, women are a valuable asset to the church. Women are very definitely valuable assets to the church. In many churches, the men are nothing but sorry, and women do most of the work. They are very valuable but not for this office. They can't teach, they can't preach, they can't lead in prayer in the public assembly. They're valuable to the ministry, but only in the place where God puts them. Now, the idea of this is so clear in Scripture that it can't be missed. I mean, this takes total blindness. It takes rebellion to the Word of God to do anything different than what I've just said. Now, right here, after Paul gave the silence of women in that second chapter in verse number 12... He follows up right after that in chapter 3 where he says, if a man desires the office of a bishop. And so there's no way you can jumble that up. You can't make an excuse to make a woman a pastor of the church. God shoots the church down when it corrupts the leadership. And that's why churches that do this, churches that have women in the pastorate, are in the worst forms of apostasy. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about this because we covered it in the Holy Spirit series, but consider again the church at Thyatira. Uh, Christ spoke to that church in Revelation chapter 2, and he had a special word, do you remember, a special word for the woman pastor at Thyatira? I mean, this is not something that's new. This was something that was going on in the New Testament times as well. What was his special word? Revelation 2 verse 20. 
Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. That one verse is good enough for me. When you put scripture with scripture and you'll come up with the right answer. Now let me add just one more comment, then I'll be through. Despite all the scriptures that we have to the contrary, that we can't find a woman pastor in the scripture, we can't find a woman apostle, we can't find a woman deacon, we can't find anything like that in scripture, yet the opponents that want to put women into those office grasp for straws. So they go back to the Old Testament and they go to the book of Judges and they ask about Deborah. What about Deborah? Well, Deborah was a judge in Israel. And my first comment is, yes, she was a judge. But look at the sorry state that Israel was in, that she had to be. The judges was one of the worst periods of Israel's history. Samson, who was a womanizer and an adulterer and a spoiled brat, he was also one of the judges. Now, the men of Israel at that time were just sorry men, and it was a shame that a woman had to step into a position to be a judge. And you may even remember that in the story of Deborah, that there was a man also by the name of Barak, who God told to take an army and go up against Sisera, and Barak had 10,000 men with him, and he would not go to fight. He said, and he told Deborah, I'm not going to go fight unless you go with me. He had to have Deborah come to back him up. Now, folks, that's a sorry man right there. That's a sorry man. But the main point here is that Deborah provides no precedent for a New Testament church. I mean, the church in Israel are different. We can't take Deborah out of the Old Testament and put her into the New Testament and impose her upon a New Testament church. We can't take what Deborah did and override all of New Testament scripture to the contrary and say that it would be all right for a woman to pastor a church. Now, here's the thing. If you set the policy for your church in the New Testament by what happened in the book of Judges, then you've got more, a church has more problems than I can ever solve. I mean, if that's, your, if that's what you're going to do, you're going to look to the judges as a model for the church, then what you need to do is go get a Samson too. That can be the pastor of the church. So I'll conclude this part of the study with that. The pastor of a church must have a divine inward call. He must have a, a confirmed call, an outward call that comes from the church. He must be a he, a him, a male, a man. Choose one of those because there is no other description that fits. That's who God calls to be the pastor of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and... And Lord, uh, we, we know that this is a, uh, a big subject that we have to talk about here, a very important one. Uh, the pastor of a church is, is not a position that is taken lightly. Uh, there are all kinds of things that are said about qualifications. There are many things said about how God wants uh, uh, the, the activities that a pastor must do and the responsibilities that he has. And then there's many things that the scripture says about the people's attitude towards the pastor, about listening, about learning, about respecting, about obeying. All of these things are in the scripture, and you expect them to be carried through as well. So as much as we look at the qualifications of the pastor, we also have to look at the people's reaction to the leadership of the pastor, and that is very, very important. Lord, we pray that 
you would help us to learn this, help us to know it better. And we do pray, Lord, that we would see a, a, a greater number of our people come out to hear such important teaching from the Word of God, things that need to be told, need to be taught. Help us to learn them. Thank you, Lord, for the time we spent together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronit Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronit Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.